Church, I'm I'm touched so much tonight. But the, I just have this burden in my, as we're singing, like, do we really understand the words of the songs that we were just singing? I don't know that we do. I don't know that I do. And I think about God and I think about his greatness. Felix and I were talking before we started, and it's just like, you want to talk about the Lord with people. I want to talk about the Lord with my children. But I'm, I fail every single time. I want to talk about the Lord tonight, but I know that I'm going to fail tonight. Because there's no language on the planet that can adequately, adequately describe the majesty of God. And the love that he has for us. How he set me free from the snare of the devil in this world. I was suicidal when I met the Lord. He rescued me from such hell. I love him with all of my heart. I want to know him. I pray that I'd be able to describe him to you tonight. I think we're going to do an offering. Are we doing that tonight, Trent? If the ushers want to come forward. Those of you who have your children with you, VVS is going next door if you want to send them. But um, let's just prepare ourselves to give to the Lord tonight. Amen. He's done so much for us. So much for us. I was talking to a Episcopalian that called me up from California this week. And he told me, he's like, I've just come to the understanding that the blessing of the tithe and the offering. He's Episcopalian, you know. Sometimes we sweep those people under the rug. Don't sell them short. He was telling me all about how the Lord had saved him, redeemed his life. He's been born again and set free from the curse. And he said, I've been given just my tithe, but the Lord just opened my eyes to giving offerings. And he said, I've just got a promotion. I'm making twice as much money as I was before. I'm retired. I'm just doing this on the side. And I've decided that I, I just want to give this entire salary now to the work of the ministry. It's like, this is incredible. Absolutely incredible. An Episcopalian man who so many would judge as just being whatever, mainstream, not really understanding. The depth of what this man understood was shocking to me. So, Father, I pray that tonight that you would touch our hearts and stretch our lives, O God. Lord, increase our giving by increasing our abundance, Lord. I pray that you would bless our families, God. Let our children know you. Lord, we pray that there would be peace in our homes, God, between the spouses of this church, that you would settle conflicts, Lord, that you would rebuke the, the enemy that would try to come in like a flood and the devourer that would try to come and break down things in our lives. We're all facing challenges, God, but we love you, Lord. You're our defense. We're givers, oh God. And you said that you would open up the windows of heaven and that you'd pour out a blessing. And the blessing is to know you, God, and that you would be in our home by your presence. We're desperate for that to be a reality, O oh Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. You can give by the, the website or different apps or all those things. But um, I've got a lot to share tonight, so I'm just going to jump right into the message. And I would encourage you, I've got, I'm, I'm going to be speaking in a way that is maybe a little bit unfamiliar to some of your ears. So please listen to what I have to say. 
I did not sleep last night at all. The whole night I was just in my office. The presence of God just came down and met me there. I was just uh, totally undone just to know him and, and, and have a nearness and an intimacy with him. It's just indescribable. And my prayer is that God would just open our eyes tonight, that we would be able to worship him for who he truly is. Not have this understanding in our minds of this God that is not. But that when we come and we worship him, we would worship the God that is. That we would love him and give him worth. Because he and he alone is worthy of our praise. Amen. So the title of this message tonight is called The King of Glory. The King of Glory. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3 if you want to turn there. We're going to cover a lot of scriptures tonight. I'll give some references and others, I'll just, they'll just be in there. So if you know your Bibles, you'll hear it. And I'm doing that because of the sake of time. This past Sunday, Miss Joan, precious, she's, you're such a blessing to us, Miss Joan, Mr. Terry, you'll never know. I don't know how many people in this church, probably 100% could say that. She's blessed our family in ways I can't even begin to describe to you. And one of the ways was she gave my kids a new children's Bible just recently. We about wore the other one out. We've been through it so many times the kids haven't memorized. And to have something fresh is beautiful. Hey, man, I don't want yesterday's manna. I want it today. But we opened it up right after lunch. She gave it to us on Sunday. And we opened it up right after lunch when we got home. And here's this man in this white robe, and he's got a blue sash, and he's surrounded by these children. And my daughter, Analia, says, it's Jesus. And I said, yes, he loves the little children. She said, just like Mr. Henry. (laughs) That's right. And she knows Jesus with this childlike simplicity. And what she knows, she loves. But there is so much more to learn about this great Christ. For he is everything. And the most important thing about a person is what they think about God. That's the most important thing about your life. What you think about God. A man's actions are the results of his thoughts. The scripture says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So the most significant message that you will ever speak, will be what is in your heart concerning God. And our future depends 100% upon what we believe about Him. So I ask the question tonight, what comes into your mind when you think about God? What you think today is going to affect your tomorrow. It will affect your eternity. Most people who call themselves Christian do not really know what they actually believe about God because most of us do not take the time and the pain to really dig into where we're really at with God, think deeply about these things, and come up with an answer of who we actually believe who He is. Not what the preacher told me. Not what the scripture says. What do I truly believe God to be? Who do I believe that he actually is? The Lord has been dealing with us as the body of Christ here at the church for quite some time now about knowing him. Getting a revelation of who he actually is. And not being satisfied what we have once known. 
moving on in the things of God. And I've been greatly convicted by this because I recognize that I see him more like my daughter sees him than I want to admit to you. Yes, there's Jesus in his white robe and a blue sash. Where did we even come up with that idea? The Lord of glory? I had a friend from Arkansas call me yesterday. Even everything in this week has just been orchestrated for this moment. And he was just telling me that his entire prayer life, he's an evangelist. My entire prayer life, he said, is absolutely hindered. Because I've suddenly realized that I've made God too small in my eyes. I think that there's been a great loss of the concept of the majesty of God in the church of our day. Who in this room does not know somebody who has walked away from God because somehow along their journey, their view of who he is was diminished in one way or another? When I observe the times that we're living in, it appears to me that the 21st century Christian view of God is so low that it is utterly beneath the dignity of God Almighty. We have heard about him by the hearing of the ear. But can we say with Job, now my eyes have seen you? Can I really say that? Or is it just wishful thinking? Our view of God is too low. And this is why the church of today has such a low place in society. Throughout church history, the church has either rose or it's fallen depending upon her view of the Most High. When her view is wrong, jokes fill the pulpit. There's flippancy in the leadership. Foolishness abounds, and the result is just a worldly life in the people. It's everywhere today. We have to drag people to prayer meetings, the services full of smoke machines, where at once the glory of God would fill the house. Theatrics have replaced the preaching of the Word of God. But when her view is right, the people come to the church because they stand in awe of this great mighty king. And there's a healthy fear of him because we behold his majesty and worship just flows out of an overflowing heart. And he is in the midst of those that are just worshiping his name because he inhabits the praise of his people. When your view of God is right, you're relieved of 10,000 problems of this temporal life that we're in. And only one burden just capsulates your entire vision. And that is the worship of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Because you realize that from a child, you and I have been rebels against God. A God that is indescribably powerful. And yet he has redeemed you and I from the curse that so affected our lives. He's called us by name. Everything depends Upon our view of God. There was a time when the knowledge of God was the most important thing in the home of the people of Europe. Renowned and respected men would study the Bible. They would discuss the scriptures even though they themselves may not have been born again. Such a high view in the land. Scientists, dignitaries, doctors, lawyers, princes, and kings had a high view of the Most High. There was a time in this nation where Congress and the President would look over their shoulder to see what the church was saying. There was such a high view of the Lord God Almighty. A low view of God destroys the gospel for all who hear it. 
Nowadays, it's not uncommon for the church to say that God is my buddy. We got a bumper sticker that says God is my co-pilot. We refer to him as the man upstairs, someone that somehow is going to help us in this life and just provide for all of my needs, all of my wants, all of my desires. Just help me in my misery. Imagine Moses describing that God that way to the slaves that God sent him down to Egypt to get out. My buddy, the man upstairs, sent me here. Foolishness. And yet we are tasked with the message of delivering slaves in our time. What's your view of God? Moses didn't go that they would have their best life now. They didn't need a best life now. They needed absolute deliverance. Absolute deliverance. Moses knew that, and so he stood there barefoot, face to face with this raging inferno of a bush that was burning but refused to burn away. When I imagine that, I just see it as the heat being so intense. God actually told him, do not come near. In the Sunday school book, we see this little tiny bush with a little flame in the thing, you know. Nonsense. This is the Lord God Almighty. How big was that bush? How large was that fire? Moses was not allowed to come very near to that place. presence of God Almighty, he was terrified, afraid to even look upon the bush. So we're going to pick this up now, Exodus 3, if you've got it. Verse 13. So Moses says to God, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the Lord God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, say this unto the children of Israel, I am has sent me unto you. I dare say that we cannot even begin to imagine what that means. The understanding and the depth of that statement is beyond my ability to describe. The people of Israel did not understand it. Pharaoh certainly did not understand it. But in the next few chapters, their eyes begin to be open to the awesomeness of our God and King. As he destroyed the ten idols, really, in those plagues, the ten gods of Egypt, all of them were judged. That deliverance which they wanted for 400 years and was so impossible was suddenly taking place. True religion confronts earth with heaven and brings eternity to bear upon time. And there is a sense of awesomeness and majesty as we become conscious of the divine i would to god that every single one of us would just live in that place conscious of the divine king of kings and lord of lords what have we been brought into it's greater than anything that you could ever imagine it is only in that position that the weight and comfort Of the words, be still and know that I am God, have any merit and meaning. If we don't understand, then those words bring zero comfort. Absolutely nothing. My people perish for lack of knowledge. 
And when Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that no temptation has overtaken you, but that which is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you to be tempted beyond your ability, but will with the temptation will make a way of escape that you might be able to bear it. These words can be so discouraging to a person that cannot understand the majesty of God. Because what happens is they have a low view of God. Because they have a low view of God, their faith is very weak. And so they just stumble again and again and again into the same temptation. Round and round we go. Where is this habitual sin ever going to stop? And we loathe ourselves because of it. I'm trying to get at the root of the problem here. We're not looking high enough. We're not understanding deep enough. So it's almost impossible for us to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitude right while our view of God is so inadequate. Therefore, the greatest service that we could ever give this generation is that they would have a high understanding of who God is. Undimmed, unlimited, a noble concept of God. I can tell you, He is worth giving your life for. That knowledge is greater than anything that you could ever learn in a thousand universities. If a man would refuse to praise God, what would happen? The very rocks would cry out, says Jesus. So the question we must answer this generation is, what is God like? The answer is simple. God is not like anything. He's not like anything that you have ever known. When Ezekiel saw the heavens open, he found himself looking into something he couldn't even begin to describe it. When you read that first chapter, you have no idea what the man is trying to even say. No language to describe it. No language on the planet that is able to describe the Lord Almighty. And that is why Ezekiel is using this figurative language to attempt to describe the indescribable. He talks about four living creatures in chapter 1. They were like a man, but they had four faces and four wings. That's not like a man to me. There was this wheel, but it was in the middle of another wheel. He gets closer to the throne, and his language just starts falling apart. I mean, it just isn't there at all. And he's trying to describe color and sounds that isn't lawful for men to even speak about. And at the end of it, he just falls on his face before God. Which is the posture, by the way, of every single person in the Scriptures that ever came face to face with the Lord. And all he can get out is just that there's this likeness of this man. Because God is so awesome. And he's so mighty. And what Ezekiel saw then is the reality of God now. A.W. Tozer said, when we try to imagine what God is like, we must of necessity use that which is not God as the raw material for our minds to work on. So whatever we visualize God to be, he is not. Because we have constructed our image out of what God has made. And what he has made is not God. If we insist upon trying to imagine him, we end with an idol. Not made with hands, but with thoughts. And an idol of the mind is just as offensive to God as an idol made with hands. Nicholas of Cusa, he lived in the 1400s. He was a German theologian. This is what he said about it. If anyone sets forth a concept of God, I know that concept 
is not what you are. For thou art absolutely above all the concepts which any man could ever frame in a thousand lifetimes. Church, do not demean God to measurable terms. Do not reduce him to the false statue or stature of the false Greek and Roman gods. Essence of idolatry is to imagine something about God and then act like that is so. The essence of idolatry is to imagine something about God and then act like that is so. So if everything we imagine God to be is false, how can I know him? I'm glad you asked. Paul gives us the answer in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 when he talks about how all of this is foolishness to the natural man. This is verse 14. But God has revealed himself to us. How? By the Spirit. Hallelujah. It's a revelation from God. And even though the men in the scriptures were unable to describe the indescribable, and though you and I see through a glass darkly, by the mercy of God, the working of the Holy Spirit, there are certain elements about God which he has revealed through his word. And you can know him. On every street corner in Jerusalem, when Jesus came walk, or riding that donkey in, Palm Sunday, every street corner, people are asking. They're saying, who is this? Who is this man? No one knows. He cannot describe to you exactly who he is. For there's no language that can, is capable of doing it. Paul said, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2.11 This is what the Lord wrote for us in the Scriptures. So don't allow yourself to be frustrated by his greatness. Do not allow yourself to be frustrated by your lack of ability to understand. I'm learning more and more to be satisfied with being in awe of this great God. I want my mind to be blown every single time I come to him. And I certainly do not want to try to describe who he is to the mockers out there. I have no time to make excuses for God. He is more than willing and able to defend himself. But unfortunately, tonight I'm forced to use the creative thoughts of a man to attempt to describe to you the uncreated Lord of glory. This is an impossible task. I know that I'm failing, Billy, beyond any ability of any man. I cannot do this. But by the Spirit of the Lord, I'm praying that he'll give you a revelation tonight that he is so much larger than you could ever comprehend. This is one of the reasons why I could not sleep last night. First of all, God has no beginning. If you are thinking about anything that has a beginning or an end, you're not thinking about God. And when someone asks the question, where did God come from? They are unknowingly admitting that they themselves are merely a created being. Because they're admitting that everything around them comes from something. And they want to know where God comes from. And this is why we have to come to God with faith like a child. Children cannot even imagine their parents as little children. They can't imagine it at all. But they have no concept with, you've just always been here. The concept of eternity. They have no problem. It's only when they get older that it all falls apart. 
And this is why philosophy and science has not always been friendly to God. Because they're tasked with figuring things out. And they're very upset with things that refuse to explain themselves. So they're very upset with God. They will admit that there's some things that they do not know. But that's different from admitting that there's some things that you cannot know. And if you've been born again, and you've followed after this God, you know that one of the highest places you can live, and the most freedom you can have, is to know that there's some things that you cannot know. There's freedom in that, and there's rest in that. Amen? There's a humility that just comes upon you. All I have to know is that God is, and that He's a rewarder of those that diligently seek Him. He is the self-sufficient one. Jesus said the Father has life in himself. John 5, 26. No creature has life in itself except for God. All life is a gift from God. God has everything in himself. He has no need for anything at all. It doesn't matter what you can think of. He doesn't need it. His love for you and I is not because he needs our love. I need his love. He is love. If you took sunlight away from this planet, everything on it would die. Is that right? God alone needs nothing. The very definition of the word need is not in the vocabulary of God. It does not apply to him one iota. It is completely foreign to him. He is the one who hung the earth on nothing. He upholds all things by the word of his power. How can he even be lifted up by our praise, I wonder, because he is the one that is supporting all things. To believe in him adds nothing to his perfection. To doubt him takes nothing away. He is absolutely superior to all. Yet somehow, in our arrogancy as people, we think that we are necessary to God. That somehow he needs our help. And I am shocked as I've traveled this world and I've heard people curse God. And I know that he holds everything by his power together, and that the very atoms of their physical nature are held together by God. 90% or what is it of your body is water. And that oxygen, that hydrogen, God is keeping together. If he just took that away, they would just disintegrate in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. And the very thing that he's upholding by his power is cursing and mocking. God does not need our help. He does not need our praise. He does not need our service. It's incredible to meet people in the ministry and hear so many of them, especially on the mission field, that are out there somehow because they believe that God actually needed them to be there. They felt sorry for some, for God in some way or another. And they think that they're helping to ease the embarrassment of the Most High. No. He has no need of anything. He needs no defenders. If God had to be defended, he could only help me while somebody is helping him. I'm talking about God tonight. The answer to everything. It's amazing that we think of Christ so often just after the flesh. We forget that all of his glory, all of his majesty, which was veiled when he was here on the earth, was given back to him at the ascension. He is not who you think he is. Do not be like the people from Nazareth that said, yes, we know him, the carpenter's son. 
I was watching that The Voice or X Factor or whatever, Katy Perry, grew up in the church. Some guy comes in and he could sing and he was a carpenter and she made the statement on national television. He's just like Jesus, the carpenter. A low view of God. Where is she today? I'm praying that by the mercy of God she would come back to a resting place. He is not just the man upstairs who likes people, or at least some people, and tries to help them live their best life now. He's not arm wrestling the devil. Moses said that he is everlasting, and his kingdom and power and glory will never come to an end. He's everlasting. He has no past. He has no future. He is uncreated and is not affected at all by time. He dwells in eternity, but time dwells in him. He has already lived all of your tomorrows, just as he has already lived all of your yesterdays. Think about that for a moment. That's incredible. He is both in the beginning and at the end of time simultaneously. He said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. For God, everything that will happen has already happened. And that is why currently in God's eyes, I am actually seated in heavenly places with Christ right now. It's almost too much to get your mind around when you just begin to muse. But you know, not one in a thousand does. Not one in a thousand just goes for a walk in the middle of the night and just thinks about God. Lay on your bed at night and just muse upon this lover of your soul. In Isaiah 46 Verse 9 and 10, he says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all of my purpose. Nothing happens in God's eyes. Everything has already happened. It's already finished. So don't let your heart be troubled. Neither let it be afraid. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made you free, and do not be entangled again in the yoke of bondage. Galatians 5.1 Cast all of your cares and all of your worries, and put away your toil and your turmoil and your trouble, and enter into the rest of your king. Go into the inner chamber, the secret place of the Most High God, where your groom is waiting for you. Let your heart cry out to him, My face, O God, will I seek. Psalms 27, verse 8 And then just seek him. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things that we need will be added unto you. He is the God of infinitude. He is greater than all language. No statement can express him. No description can paint his portrait. If you would gather up all the thoughts that have ever been thought about God and they are nothing compared to him. Absolutely nothing. You cannot weigh him. There is no tape measure that can measure his statue. You're going to measure the stature of God? In many places, people still form their gods out of wood and clay and stone. I've been there. Not this God. You're not going to fashion him into any form. It's absolutely impossible. He's the measureless God. And his gift of eternal life in Christ Jesus is just as limitless as he is. Our natural life is just this cycle from birth to death. And it ceases at that point. But the life of God cycles nowhere. Hallelujah. It never ceases. 
His love knows no bounds because it is not something that he does. It's something that he is. He's eternal, amen? It's a facet of his nature. And his nature never changes. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord and I change not. He never grows. He never develops into something else than he already is. If God could get better, he would not be perfect. And if he is not perfect, the universe would collapse because he is holding everything. In God, there's no variation or shadow due to change. James 1.17 He has never been less holy than he is right now. He can never be any holier than he is and always will be. Any deterioration of his unspeakable holy nature is absolutely impossible. Do you know this, God? If he could change, he would not be self-created. Any influence outside of himself could affect him. He would not be. A thousand trillion years from now, God will be just as righteous as he is at this moment. He is the same yesterday, today, forever. And if we think that our prayers are somehow going to change God, we are fooling ourselves. You will not coax God into doing anything for you. I don't care what it is. You will not coax God into doing anything. He will compromise nothing. So I question myself. Why do I want my wife to be healed? Hannah asked me, we were talking about this the other day. She said, would my healing rob us of what God is doing in our life? I want the relief. Right. I'm emotional. So temporary in my thought process. And I think if God is so good, why doesn't he just heal her? I challenge the goodness of God. God has not told us that she will not be healed. So I just keep believing. I keep praying. Amen. But I do so knowing in humility that my prayer does not change God. Prayer changes me. Prayer is where I meet him. It's where he gives me a revelation of his will and his direction for my life. He doesn't change. We change into the same image from glory to glory, even by the spirit of the Lord. Second Corinthians 3.18. Redemption is possible because I can change and he can't. at this exact moment he feels exactly towards you as he did the day that he sent his only begotten son to give his life on an old rugged cross beaten and mocked with his beard ripped out of his face covered in blood with a crown of thorns because of his love for you His attitude towards sin is just the same as when he drove Adam and Eve from the garden. And his heart for the sinner 
has not deviated from when he said, if you would just come unto me, all you who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. When the sinner repents and confesses all to God, God learns nothing. He has no need for any information from anybody. When Adam was hiding in the garden and God said, Adam, where are you? He didn't ask for his sake. He asked for Adam's sake. Psalms 139, verse 7 and 8. Where shall I go from thy spirit? Where shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, you are there. God is to our environment as the sea is to a fish. He's all around us. You can't get away from him. He's everywhere. He's omnipresent. And what's so wonderful about that is it makes Jesus Christ immediately accessible to every longing heart. Doesn't matter how far you run, like Jonah, you're not getting away from him. Praise God forevermore. And if you truly know that, that you are never alone, then that knowledge will calm the raging sea of your troubled heart. As you'll understand the greatness of this God and the depth of his love for you. He knows you completely. And that means that nobody can rat you out to God. No hidden skeleton can come tumbling out of your closet. Surprise! To the Lord. Nobody's going to expose your past to him. Christ shed his blood for you. And he did so knowing every terrible thing that you would ever do in your entire life. Isaiah 54 and verse 10. For the mountains may depart, the hills be removed. But my steadfast love shall not depart from you. My covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion upon you. Our Father in heaven knows our frame. He remembers that we are but dust. He knew our inborn treachery. And for his own sake, he saved us. We were dead before he breathed life upon us, weren't we? But the sovereign, omnipotent God sent a rescue party from heaven to redeem a young man one night in the midst of suicide. And in every culture and in every generation, he'll do the same for every heart that cries out to him and longing for the reality of this God. The Bible says, in the beginning was the Word. He is both the Scripture and the reason to declare it. His limitless power is given to you and I that we might be healed and deliver and to become the sons of God, raised from death into life. He gives that power to us, but He does not give it away. Everything that He has just returns to Himself because He has it all. And that is why you actually become a part of the body of Christ when you receive his power. Have you ever thought about that? He possesses everything. We sing the song, nothing is too difficult for thee. 
I mean, he speaks worlds into existence. He is the highest being you could ever imagine. The book of Job actually says that he is taller than the stars. The Hubble telescope found one, the furthest one away, nine billion light years. How great is this God? We don't have the ability to comprehend it. He is transcendent above all. He is the faithful high priest. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. If God changed, the foundations of eternity would collapse upon itself. But because he is perfect, all that God does agrees with what he is. Being and doing are one with God. He just is. And every sin that man has ever committed, every mistake that has ever been made, has taken place because somehow along the road, man has believed things about God that are not true. Today, people believe that because God is love, God is not just. They say because God is good, he will somehow contradict his holiness. And all of that must be overcome by believing everything that God says about his son, himself and not just part. He is entirely good as well as holy, entirely loving as well as just. And our entire salvation rests upon his infinite faithfulness. It doesn't matter how tempted you are. It doesn't matter how anxious you are. It doesn't matter how fearful or discouraged you may be. You can leave this place tonight knowing full well that God will ever be true to his word. His covenant will not remove his loving kindness from you nor allow his faithfulness to fail. He is a good, good father. If he was not good, there would be no difference between kindness and cruelty. There would be no difference between heaven and hell. He hears our prayers because he is good and for no other reason. Faith is simply having confidence in the goodness of God. And believing that what he said, he's able to perform. It's only sin that has made us suspicious of that. It's sin that deceives man to think that if we come to him, somehow he's just going to cast us out. He's not to be trusted. He doesn't cast anybody out. Hallelujah. That father ran to that prodigal son. Somehow we need to return to a healthy understanding of who God is and have a heavenly fear of God. It is the greatness of God that rouses that fear within us. But his goodness encourages us not to be afraid of him at the same time. What a paradox. Have the fear of God, yet not be afraid of Him at all. He is the righteous Lord. He will judge sin wherever it may be found. He is not some kindly old man in a black judge's robe that's just sitting at the bench looking for a reason to pardon people. No, no. That's on television. And too many people today are trusting in that delusion. It's it's terrifying. I'm terrified for my brother in laws like that. It silences their fear of God and allows them to commit all types of iniquity while death is just constantly drawing nearer and nearer and nearer to them every single day. He is kind, but it's his kindness that leads us to repentance. Amen? Repentance for making him too small in our eyes. He is just. Justice is not violated when God spares a sinner. It satisfies God's wrath. Justice is satisfied because of the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Justice pronounces that person to be righteous, not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of someone else. What right do you and I have to such mercy? None. I have no right to be adopted into this incredible family of God. I was a, by my very nature, I was a child child of wrath. Ephesians 2, 3. Yet his mercies are new every morning. Did you know that mercy never began? It always has been because it's God. Do not forget that the same is true with grace. We read the scripture that John tells us in John 1.17. He says, grace came by Jesus Christ. That's true. But you have to remember, Christ was slain from the foundations of the world. And so grace did not wait for him to be born into a manger. Grace did not wait for him to suffer and die on a cross. It's all through the Old Testament. It came because of the incarnate Christ or the pre-incarnate Christ. He always has been. He always will be. He was slain from the foundation of the world. I can't, I can't explain that to you. I can no more explain that to you than I could walk outside tonight and just pluck a star out of the sky. It's impossible. Yet we honor God when we believe what he has spoken concerning himself and his word. Thus, I can come boldly, without reservation, to the throne of grace. Hallelujah. And not hide amongst the trees of the garden, like Adam did. We're invited to come to holiness that you cannot even begin to imagine. Just come unto me. Come unto me. Come unto me. He tells us, his children, to be holy as I am holy. But he never said, be as holy as I am. Big difference there. So how do I have holiness? I have union with Christ, who is holiness. And being found in him, everything. Grafted into the vine. He is all-knowing. He is all-powerful. He's absolutely free. The Lord omnipotent reigneth. And in his sovereignty, he has allowed evil to exist. But he has limited its scope. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. His son spoiled principalities and power. They had rule over us, but they never had rule over him. He is the most matchless being in all of eternity. And he wants to spend time with you. Our view of him is too small, church. We must come to a greater revelation of who this great God is. Did you know that every time a human breathes, we're speaking his name? He is the air that I breathe. I'm closing. This God is the matchless majesty of the universe. He's the maker of heaven and earth. He's the only wise king, the savior of the world. (laughs) Scripture says that he sits upon the circle of the earth, stretches out the heavens as a curtain, He calls each and every star by name. He knows the very number 
of hairs upon your head. To know him is the most easy and yet most difficult thing in the world. It's easy because it's freely given. Difficult because it requires humility and understanding on my part that I've made you too small in my eyes. But he said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And the pure in heart simply means the heart that's been cleansed by Christ's blood. Just come into this thing, been born again. And in that moment, before we begin to backslide, there's no hypocrisy. There's no hidden motive. There's no guile. It's difficult to maintain that, I know. Because we're in a fallen world. We're walking through it and our feet are always getting dirty. And there is much of God's light and majesty that we are in the dark to. I think that we are much like my daughter. Recognizing a description of Jesus. But perhaps our view of him has just stayed with that description far too long. As we we see him as a man in a white robe, the blue sash, loves the children to just come unto him and somehow he'll help people get through this howling wasteland of a wilderness that we call earth. I love the fact that my daughter recognizes Jesus in the children's book. But I want her vision to grow. And I want her to know him. Because I've attempted to describe him to you tonight. I want you to know him. I want to know him. This lover of my soul. The greatest rescuer and redeemer the time will ever know. The originator of the seen and the unseen. He is the king of glory. Maybe you need to have your vision enlarged tonight. The goodness of God desires our highest welfare. The wisdom of God will plan it. And the power of God will achieve it, not you.